Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. The Peter Schiff Show. Today's podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN encrypts 100% of your internet data to keep you safe from hackers and eavesdroppers. So go to expressvpn.com gold and you'll get an extra three months free on your one-year subscription package. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Ladder. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance without leaving your home. So go to ladderlife.com gold today to see if you're instantly approved. Well, another week, another bloodbath for the bond market. The bad news for the bond market is that it's a huge tub and there's a lot more blood that's going to be poured in. Think about it from this perspective. Now that the Federal Reserve has announced quantitative tightening, again, I don't think it's that fast a pace. $95 billion per month of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. When you compare that to a $9 trillion balance sheet, it's still pretty slow. In fact, when you compare the last round of quantitative tightening, even though it was smaller, they were doing $50 billion a month, you had a much smaller balance sheet. So in comparison to today's balance sheet, we're actually not faster than the last time we did it. We're actually slower. Also, the pace that the Fed is suggesting the balance sheet is going to be reduced by is slower 
than the pace that it was inflated by. So when the Fed was buying government bonds and doing quantitative easing, it was far more aggressive than the way it's going to be with its quantitative tightening program in selling the bonds, even though we have a severe emergency in the name of inflation, the Fed is not taking this fight seriously, given the fact that it could, in theory, shrink its balance sheet a lot faster than $95 billion a month, yet it's choosing not to do that. And of course, in theory, they can do a lot of things. But in practice, they really can't do anything, including the timetable that they've already laid out. Because if you think about it in these terms, Federal Reserve has been the U.S. Treasury's biggest customer when it comes to buying government debt because the U.S. government is basically in the business of selling debt. I mean, that is its main function. It has to go out and get people to buy its debt. That's why I've said that we don't even have a secretary of the treasury because we don't have a treasury because the treasury is bare. All we got in the treasury is IOUs. So what we actually have is the secretary of the debt. That's Janet Yellen's real job. She is in charge of that debt, but she's also in charge of making sure that the debt can get bigger and that there's a willing supply of buyers willing to lend us the money. Well, our biggest customer was the Federal Reserve itself. It was buying more U.S. Treasuries than anybody else. Well, now the Treasury's biggest customer is not only no longer buying any U.S. government bonds from the Treasury, it is now effectively competing with the U.S. Treasury by doing quantitative tightening, which effectively is selling U.S. Treasuries. Think about that in terms of a business. What if you had a business and you were selling widgets and you had one customer that bought half your widgets, maybe more, maybe two-thirds of your widgets. This was your best customer. You can count on this customer to buy most of the widgets that you needed to sell. Now, not only has this customer decided that it's not going to buy any more of your widget, but in fact, it's going into the business of selling widgets itself, and it's going to manufacture the exact type of widgets that you make. Everything is identical to your product and it's now going to start selling its widgets into the market in competition with you, right? That would be a disaster for your widget business. Well, that is the exact disaster that the U.S. Treasury is experiencing now because the bonds that the Federal Reserve is effectively selling with quantitative tightening are identical to the bonds the U.S. government is selling directly, except now it no longer has the Fed as a customer. It has the Fed as a competitor. And so this is a very tough environment if you're in the business of selling U.S. Treasuries. And what does that mean? You're not going to make as much money. You're going to have to cut your prices in order to deal with a loss of customers and more competition. And what cutting prices means in the bond business is you're selling your bonds at lower prices, which means you're offering bond buyers higher yields. And that is exactly what is happening. Let's take a look at the yields on U.S. Treasuries as they stand now. I'm recording the podcast over the weekend on Saturday, so these yields are from Friday's close. But the yield on a two-year U.S. Treasury closed the week at 2 spot 5.1%. So now even a two-year yield is higher than 2.5%. Now, I remember a few months ago, most people thought that the upper end of the 10-year would be 25 They didn't even contemplate that yields could get higher than that, 
even by the time the Fed finished raising interest rates, yet here we are above 2.5% on a two-year. Now, yields on the five-year U.S. Treasury closed the week at 2.756. That is the highest close so far. In fact, the intraday high yesterday, which was the high since pre-COVID, that was 2.791. Last week, we closed at two spot 549, so a pretty solid gain on the five-year. And again, that is the highest yield you're going to get anywhere on the curve because it's inverted from there. Oh, and by the way, for a brief moment in time, on Friday, we did get an inversion of the 10- and 30-year treasuries, meaning that for the first time of this bond bear market, the yields on the 10-year treasury were higher than the yield on the 30-year treasury. On my last podcast, I pointed out that that spread had widened to 35 basis points. Well, that widening was completely reversed on Friday, and briefly, we got a negative slope from 10 to 30. Now, we didn't close that way. We very well may end up closing that way next week. We'll see. I think a lot of people are going to be keeping an eye on the 10s and 30s. But anyway, the 10-year Treasury closed the week at 2.713. The intraday high was 2.728. And that was a big jump from the close last week where we were two spot 377. 30-year yields closed even higher. Two spot 746 is where we settled. The high of the day intraday was 2.76. And that's against last week's close of two spot 424. I mean, think about it this way. Last week, the yield on a 30-year treasury is lower than what you get this week on a two-year treasury because 30-year treasuries ended last week at two spot 424, yet the two years ended this week at two spot 51. That's how much yields are rising and how quickly they're going up. Obviously, at this pace, the yields from the fives to the 30s will be above 3% next week. And in fact, unless the stock market crashes next week, that is exactly what I expect to happen. Now, if the stock market crashes, that may change the dynamic. And the reason it would change the dynamic is because it would change the way bond investors perceive future Fed policy. Because if we get a crash in the stock market. Well, number one, automatically, you get some type of flight into bonds. Whenever there's a stock market crash, money comes out of stocks into the supposed safety of bonds. Now, maybe we won't get the safe haven buying this time that we normally get, but there's another reason for people to buy bonds in the face of a stock market crash. Because if the stock market actually crashed, and I'm not talking about this slow decline that we're experiencing now, but a real crash, I mean, a huge drop, maybe 5 or 10% on one day, or maybe something bigger, like that 20% crash we got on the Black Monday in 1987. But if we get a big crash in the stock market, where those are the headlines in the newspaper, stock market crashes, stock market crashes, obviously, if that happens, these rate hikes are off the table. Quantitative tightening is off the table because if the stock market crashes, the Federal Reserve is going to be very worried 
about a recession starting sooner rather than later because they will believe the stock market crash and the reverse wealth effect that it has will accelerate the beginning of a recession. And if the Fed thinks a recession is close at hand, meaning it's going to start before the midterm elections, there is no way that it's going to follow through with its planned rate hikes and quantitative tightening. And so the bond market will sense that and money will go into bonds as it comes out of stocks. Now, that reaction will be short-lived because if it happens and the dollar crashes, which it would, and inflation continues to accelerate, which it will, then the bond investors will realize that yes, we have recession, but that doesn't get rid of inflation. In fact, it just made the inflation problem worse. And ultimately, it's inflation that destroys the value of bonds. So even if we're in a recession, and even if the Fed is not doing quantitative tightening, bond prices are still going to fall because of inflation. And if the Fed steps up the pace of quantitative easing to prevent that from happening, well, they create even more inflation. And even if treasury yields don't go up, the yield on every other debt instrument that the Fed is not inflating the money supply to buy will go way up. But absent a stock market crash, I don't see what would stop bond yields from rising. And in fact, if that is the case, if the only thing that will stop bond yields from rising is a stock market crash, well, then a stock market crash is inevitable. The only question is how high will treasury yields be before that crash happens? What is the tipping point? What is the straw that breaks the back of the market? I don't know, but we're going to find out. And the only way that won't happen is if the bond market just crashes first. And if that happens, well, then the stock market crash is inevitable because if the bond market crashes, well, the stock market has to crash. But the reason it hasn't crashed yet is because I think people are still reacting like that deer in a headlight. They see this relentless rise in yields, but they think it's going to stop. It can't possibly keep going, yet it continues. And so I don't think bond bulls have thrown in the towel yet. There hasn't been a real capitulation where everybody is like, I can't take it anymore. I just want out. And then you get this crash. And if that happens, well, that will shock the stock market. Because again, the stock market is not crashing because everybody just assumes that this slow grind is going to reverse at some point. And so they're not as worried about how high interest rates could ultimately climb. But look at the trajectory. In fact, if you just take a look at the rate at which interest rates are rising for this calendar year, 2022, and you just extrapolate that pace for all of the year and assume that interest rates continue to rise throughout the year at the same rate that they've already risen during the first quarter and, you know, a few days, the yield on the 10-year treasury would be six and a quarter by the end of the year. Now, there's no way that bond yields are going to rise to six and a quarter without the stock market crashing. So it's somewhere along the way, the stock market would have to crash to prevent that from happening. And the fact of the matter is the pace at which bond yields are rising is actually faster in the last five weeks than in the past three months. So if you just extrapolate the rate at which interest rates on the 10-year have risen in the past five weeks and you say that pace 
is going to continue. Then we're going to get to six and a quarter in yield in about four months by August. And in fact, if we continue the pace of the last five weeks for the rest of the year, we'll be looking at a 10-year yield on a U.S. Treasury bond by year end. Now, that is impossible. There there is no way yields can get that high, A, without the stock market crashing. So it's going to crash somewhere along the way to prevent it from happening. But also, if interest rates got to 10%, nobody could afford to pay interest on their debt. I mean, certainly the U.S. government couldn't afford to pay 10% interest. Think about it. The national debt is over $30 trillion. And it's all financed with short-term treasuries. Very little of that debt is financed with 30-year paper. So every year, trillions and trillions of dollars mature. I think the entire weighted average maturity is under five years, maybe three years or something like that. But that means as this low-yielding debt matures, they've got to roll it over. I think a full third of the debt matures over the next year. That's $10 trillion to be refinanced at 10%. Whereas right now they got it financed at 25 basis points or 50 basis points. But if interest rates went to 10% and stayed there, that would cost the U.S. government over $3 trillion just to pay the interest on the debt each and every year. Now to put that $3 trillion number into perspective, the U.S. government only collects about $4 trillion a year in taxes. That's all taxes combined personal income tax, corporate income tax, social security tax, all the excise taxes, roll all that money up into one and you get about $4 trillion. Now, imagine if $3 trillion of that $4 trillion, 75% of all the money the U.S. government collected in taxes was used to pay interest on the debt, meaning that there's only 25% of tax revenue left over for the military, for social security, for Medicare, welfare, all the things the government did, it would have to do at 25% of its tax revenue, which is impossible. Obviously, they would try to borrow all that money. But again, we're talking about a world where interest rates are 10%. How are they going to borrow more money? They can't. In fact, if interest rates went to 10% for the federal government, well, they would be skyrocketing for everybody. It wouldn't just be the U.S. government that would be burdened by higher debt service costs, corporate America, individual households. Could you imagine the severity of the recession that the U.S. economy would be in if interest rates went to 10%? So what happens during a recession? Well, government tax revenue dries up because businesses fail, people lose their jobs, and so they're not paying taxes. Tax revenue goes down. At the same time, what happens to the budget deficit during a recession? Well, it goes up because now more people qualify for unemployment or welfare or food stamps or various other programs. So what that means is if we got to 10% interest rates, government revenue, tax revenue wouldn't be $4 trillion. It would be even less. But the size of the national debt would be much greater due to the added borrowing that a recession would create. And so in other words, interest on the national debt would quickly exceed 100% of tax revenue, meaning that even all of the tax revenue that the U.S. government collected wouldn't even be sufficient to cover the interest on the debt that we already had. And there would be no money whatsoever to pay for government. Clearly, 
that can't happen. And so something is going to have to happen to prevent interest rates from going to 10%. And what is that going to be? It's going to be the Federal Reserve. It's going to be the Federal Reserve somewhere along the way, reversing course, stop raising interest rates, stop quantitative tightening, and it's going to have to go back to quantitative easing. Now, that doesn't mean we're home free. That's not a good solution to this problem. It's actually a bigger disaster because then we have runaway inflation, which is going to be even worse than what we would have if the Fed just allowed interest rates to go to 10%. Now, I'm not saying that's not going to be bad. That's going to be horrific. It's just that what we have instead is going to be even worse. You've heard me talk about how important it is to have a VPN to protect your online privacy. But choosing a VPN that you trust is equally as important. Now, you know I like to do research on my sponsors. I only recommend brands to my listeners that I believe in myself. And I can say with full confidence that ExpressVPN is the best VPN on the market. Here's just a few reasons. ExpressVPN doesn't log your activity online. Lots of cheap or free VPNs make money by selling your data to advertisers. But ExpressVPN doesn't do this. They even developed a technology trusted server that makes their VPN service incapable of storing any data at all. Also, it's the speed. ExpressVPN now uses Lightweight, a new VPN protocol that's engineered to make your speed faster than ever. I've tried VPNs in the past and they can sometimes slow your connection. But ExpressVPN is always blazing fast and it allows me to stream video in HD quality with zero buffering. And the last thing that really sets ExpressVPN apart is how easy it is to use. You don't need any technical skills to get set up. Just fire up the app and tap one button to connect. That's it. Even your grandparents could figure that out. And it's not just me saying this. Business Insider, The Verge, and many other tech journals rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. In fact, it's especially useful to me living in Puerto Rico because a lot of the content and websites that I want to access are not available from this location. So by using ExpressVPN, I get access to sites and content that otherwise would be unavailable to me. And as another bonus, when I'm searching the internet without using ExpressVPN, a lot of the results come back in Spanish. So if I don't want Spanish, if I want results I can read in English, all I have to do is fire up ExpressVPN and it's all English. So protect yourself with the VPN that I use and trust. Use my link, expressvpn.com slash gold today and get an extra three months free on a one-year subscription package. That's expressvpn.com slash gold. Visit expressvpn.com slash gold to learn more. Oh, and by the way, you know, you don't even have to be in a recession for government spending to go up. Look at what the Biden administration already proposed this week. President Biden now wants to expand Obamacare. He wants to include more people in the coverage. He wants to open up the insurance to the family members of people who qualify for Obamacare, but who currently have private insurance. If that private insurance exceeds 10% of their household income, well, they can drop that and go on Obamacare instead, subjecting the taxpayers to additional outlays. Now, where is all this extra money going to come from because the government is broke? Well, it's just going to be more borrowing, but it's happening at a time where the cost of that borrowing is going up. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, 
Movement has something she'll love. And right now you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. But as I said, not only is it going to be the U.S. government that is going to have a huge problem with higher interest rates, but everybody in the private sector is going to have a problem as well. And in fact, since yields on U.S. Treasuries are always considered to be the risk-free rate, despite the fact that they're nothing but risk, but all the other borrowing costs are built on top of Treasury. So anybody else who has to borrow money is going to pay more than the U.S. Treasury. So the Treasury rate is the floor. Everybody else's borrowing costs are somewhere higher than that. So if the Treasury is paying 10%, well, if you're in the private sector, you're paying 12% or 13%. And so where are people in the private sector going to get all that extra money? First of all, let's think about corporations, big corporations. Where are they going to get all this money as they're short-term debt matures and it's now in a high-rate environment versus a low-rate environment. Well, one thing they can do, and this would be true of small business as well, they can raise prices. Their interest costs have gone up. That's just like their raw material costs going up or their labor costs going up. So they can pass those higher interest costs on to the customer in the form of higher prices. That's why I've been saying all along higher interest rates are actually inflationary when you're just measuring the CPI because those higher borrowing costs are going to ultimately be reflected in the CPI so they can raise prices. Now, another thing they can try to do is cut overhead, cut their costs to try to make up for the fact that their interest costs are rising. So they can lay people off. They can try to cut their salaries. That's one way that they can try to offset rising interest rates. So now that means that people lose their jobs. And now those people are no longer paying taxes. They're also unemployed. So that helps push the economy into recession. But a third thing that corporations can do when interest rates are rising is pay off their debts. Well, where are they going to get the money to pay off their debts? They'll have to sell stock, which of course would reverse the very policies they had when rates were low. Because where did a lot of the money come from to finance all those corporate buybacks? It came from issuing debt. Corporations looked at how low interest rates were and they thought, hey, why don't we just take advantage of these low rates? We'll borrow a bunch of money 
The interest doesn't cost us very much. And we'll take that money we borrowed and we'll buy back our stock. And that'll help push up the stock price. And now we'll get bigger bonuses and everyone's going to be richer because of this higher stock price. So corporations took on all that debt because interest rates were low. And in fact, that's what the government was doing. All these politicians were saying we might as well take advantage of these low interest rates, right? And borrow more money because it's so cheap. Remember what I was saying back then? I said, that's like saying, hey, they're giving away free heroin. Let's take it because it's free. I mean, just because something is free doesn't mean you should do it. Just because they were giving out free loans doesn't mean you go out and borrow the money when eventually interest rates are going to go up and now you're stuck with all this debt. Well, that's what happened to now to corporate America. They borrowed all this money. They bought back stock, but now they have a pile of debt. And when it becomes very expensive to service that debt, a lot of companies are going to want to retire it because they're not going to want to keep paying interest and destroying their earnings with these high interest payments. So one way to increase earnings then will be to pay off the debt so they no longer have this huge interest expense to subtract from their earnings. Well, where do they get the cash to pay off the debt. Well, they have to reverse the buybacks. They have to sell stock into the market and get the cash so they can pay back the debt. But here's what's likely to happen. When all these companies that were doing share buybacks now want to sell stock, it's like their own quantitative tightening. They were doing their own QE when they were buying stock and now they have to do QT. They got to start selling stock. What's going to happen to stock prices? They're going to collapse because all these big companies are trying to unload stock. Who's going to buy all the stock? Remember, the potential stock investors, they're dealing with the same problem. They've got their own debts that they have to service, whether it's mortgages or other debt. They don't have any extra money lying around to buy stocks. Also, they may be buying these 10% yielding U.S. Treasuries because obviously the government has these huge deficits that it needs to finance. That money has to come from somewhere. When it came from the Federal Reserve, well, it came from nowhere. But if it comes from the private sector, if the U.S. government has to actually borrow trillions and trillions of dollars a year, then somebody has to lend the government trillions and trillions of dollars a year. Well, if investors are loaning the U.S. government trillions and trillions of dollars, well, that's trillions and trillions of dollars they can't put into the stock market. They can't put into other markets or they can't loan to other borrowers because the U.S. government is crowding everything out. You can't see the crowding out when you have the Fed buying all the treasuries and monetizing that debt. But when they're not doing it anymore, you experience it. So how are all these corporations going to unload stock when there's no money to buy the stock? Well, obviously, the stock prices will crash. And so they're not going to raise nearly as much money when they sell stock, which means they're going to have to sell an even larger quantity to repay the debt. So all these share buybacks are going to blow up in the faces of all the companies that bought back stock. They're going to end up taking a huge loss and they're going to massively dilute their stockholders because in order to pay back the debt, since the stock price is going to be lower, the companies are going to have to issue a lot more additional shares to retire the debt than the stock they bought when they were accumulating the debt. And so we don't need the government to ban buybacks. I think these buybacks are going to end up being such a disaster that it's going to be a long time before companies make the mistake of doing this again, at least with borrowed money. I mean, if you're buying back stock out of profits and you're trying to return those profits to shareholders in the most tax efficient way possible, then I got nothing against buybacks. 
But when you're financing the buybacks with debt, that is a huge mistake and it never would have happened but for the Federal Reserve and the artificially low interest rate. But again, it's not just corporate America that is going to be struggling with high interest rates. It's going to be American households. We are loaded up with record amounts of debt, credit card debt, auto loans, student loans, mortgage debt. In fact, look at what's already happening with mortgages now when yields are not even at 3%. 30-year fixed rate mortgages are now above 5%. This is the first time we've had a five handle on a 30-year fix in several years. And historically, that's not high. I mean, I remember the first time they hit 5% on the way down. I thought, wow, that's really cheap. Well, it doesn't look so cheap when we were just at three and a quarter. But what's even scarier than that is if you look up and you see how much higher mortgage rates can rise. Because if we're at 5.09 now, when we're still below 30%, on a 30-year treasury, in a 10-year treasury, imagine if those yields got to 10% where mortgage rates would be. I bet they'd be 15% at a minimum in a world where you have 10-year U.S. treasury rates. And the reason I think the spread would widen is because the default risk would widen because how high the interest payments are. But think about this. I, I mentioned this on an earlier podcast, but I want to do the exercise again because it's even more dramatic. But home prices are up almost 20% year over year. That's the increase in home prices. And even before mortgage rates shot up, and even with record low mortgage rates, home prices were so high that affordability was at an all-time record low. Well, obviously, we've shattered that record because home prices are still going up. But now the cost of borrowing money to buy those houses are soaring. So if you take a 20% increase and you assume that a home that cost $330,000 a year ago costs $400,000 today. That's a 20% increase. And if you assume that the person who bought that house a year ago could scrape up almost a 10% down payment, $30,000 down, and they were able to borrow the rest at 3.3, which is about where the rates were. That was the like kind of the low mark. The monthly payment would be $1,397.20. Buy the same house today at 400K, which is a 20% increase, finance it at 5.09% with the same $30,000 down payment. Now gives you a monthly payment of just over 2,000. 2006 bought 64. That is a 44% increase in one year in the monthly payments of somebody buying the identical house that they would have bought a year ago. Compare that to the 4.5% annual increase the government claims for owner's equivalent rent. Housing prices or the cost of owning a home has risen 10 times as much as the government claims when it puts housing into the CPI under the guise of owner's equivalent rent. And of course, the true cost of buying a home has increased by more than 44% in the last year because I'm just looking at the mortgage rate. What about property taxes? What about insurance? Those things have gone through the roof. Insurance rates, maintenance costs, utilities, all of those prices that are associated with home ownership. You got to pay those bills every month. And so I would say that if somebody buys a house today, versus buying a house a year ago, and you look at what it's now going to cost them on a monthly basis because they own that house, I would say their costs have already gone up 
by 50% in one year. That is a huge increase, but obviously all the extra money that homeowners are now forced to pay for a home, well, where's that money coming from? They got to stop buying something else. Now, yes, this only relates to people who are newly buying homes, not the people who already own them, but the people who already own them, they have rising utilities, they have rising insurance and rising property taxes. But you know, a lot of people who have mortgages don't have 30 year fixed. A lot of people have five year arms and a lot of those mortgages are about to reset. And as they do, they're going to reset at much higher rates than what the homeowners are currently paying. And so all of a sudden, if your monthly mortgage payment is $300, $400, $500 a month higher, where's that money coming from? I mean, it's not like homeowners are sitting on a pile of cash. I mentioned on my last podcast, the skyrocketing credit card debt last month because all that stimulus money is gone. They've already spent it. So they're out of cash. And so how are homeowners going to survive with this big increase in their monthly mortgage payment? Well, they're going to have to cut back on spending in other areas, which is exactly why the economy is going into recession. But also, they have less money to buy stocks. They have less money to buy bonds. At the same time that corporations are going to be selling more stock, the U.S. government is going to be issuing more bonds. But the people who could buy those stocks, the people who could buy those bonds, they don't have the money. Nobody has the money. The Fed had all the money because they were creating it out of thin air. But of course, when the Fed creates money, it doesn't create purchasing power. It just destroys the value of the money that already exists. Prices go up. And that's what we've been experiencing. It's not because of COVID. It's not because of Putin. It's because of the U.S. government running budget deficits and the Federal Reserve monetizing those deficits by printing money. It's been going on for a long time. And all those inflation chickens have finally come home to roost. Oftentimes, when people are out shopping for life insurance, they end up being sold a whole life policy when what they really need is term life. Term life is the best type of insurance to buy if what you really care about is maximizing the death benefit for your loved ones while minimizing the cost of buying that insurance. And term life insurance frees up more money that you can invest and spend now, yet allows you to have a much bigger death benefit in the unfortunate event that you're not around to provide for those that depend on you the most. Ladder is 100% digital when you apply for up to $3 million in coverage or less. There are no doctors to visit, no needles, and no paperwork to fill out. To apply, you just need a phone and a laptop and a few spare minutes. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you've been approved. There's no hidden fees, and you can cancel any time. And if you change your mind in the first 30 days, you'll get a full refund. And Ladder's insurance policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims. And since life insurance always costs more as you get older, there's no better time than now to cross it off your list. So go to ladderlife.com gold today to see if you're instantly approved. That's ladderlife, L-A-D-D-E-R life.com gold to see if you're instantly approved. Moving from the bond market over to the stock market, all of the major U.S. stock market indexes finished the week in the red. The smallest loss was for the Dow Jones. That index was down just 0.28% 
on the week, but that brings its year-to-date loss at 4.5%. Now, the reason the Dow is falling less than other indexes is because you have fewer growth-oriented names in the Dow. And again, as I've been saying on this podcast, and it's important that anybody listening get this, is that the growth names are the ones that are most negatively impacted by rising rates. After all, those were the names that benefited most from falling rates and low inflation. They're going to suffer the most from rising rates and high inflation. So if you're going to make the mistake of staying in the U.S. stock market, you have to be in more value-oriented stocks, dividend-paying stocks, and stay away from those high-flying growth stocks like the FANG stocks, any of these popular stocks that most investors own and that did really well over the last 10 years, you don't want to own any of those stocks. Looking at the S&P 500, it dropped 1.3% on the week. See a much bigger percentage drop than the Dow. And year to date, we're down 5.8%. Now, these are still relatively minor declines for the Dow and the S&P, especially given what's happening in the economy, what's happening in the bond market. In fact, investors so far this year have lost more money in bonds than they have in the Dow or the S&P. Now think about that because that is very significant because a lot of people buy bonds as the conservative part of their portfolio. You have a lot of people that are maybe 50-50 bonds, stocks, or maybe 60% stocks, 40% bonds. That's a more typical allocation. The bond portion of the portfolio is supposed to offset losses that you may have in the stock portfolio. But this year, investors have losses in bonds and stocks, and they have even bigger losses in bonds than they do in stocks. So instead of offsetting the losses in the stock market, bond allocations are exacerbating those losses in the stock market. So it's completely blowing up in the faces of the people who have these cookie cutter Wall Street portfolios. Now, the NASDAQ, there the losses are much greater. And in fact, I think your typical U.S. investor, their returns are probably closer to the NASDAQ than the S&P because most American investors are concentrated in the names that dominate the NASDAQ more so than the S&P. The NASDAQ dropped 3.5% on the week. It's now down 12.25% on the year. Now, at one point this year, we were down 22%. We were in bear market territory. We've had the first bear market rally taking us out of bear market territory, but the lows are not in. This is going to be a pretty substantial bear market, even if the Fed does come to the rescue with another round of QE, we're going to take out those lows. We're going to go much deeper into bear market territory than 22% decline. But the worst index on the week was actually the Russell 2000. That was down 4.6%. It actually had the biggest rally off the lows, but I don't think the low is in. That index was in bear market territory as well, and it's headed back down to bear market territory, even though right now it's only down 11% from its highs. But both the NASDAQ and the Russell 2000 are officially in that correction territory, 
Although, given the fact that both of those indexes moved into a bear market, they're still in bear markets until they make new highs, which I really doubt will happen. So these are bear markets and they have a long way to go down. And of course, the carnage is the worst at the more speculative end of the NASDAQ. I like to talk about the Kathy Wood ARK Innovation ETF because that is an excellent proxy for that risk part of the spectrum. And the ARK Innovation Fund was down 10.2% on the week. And year to date, that ETF is now down 36%. Remember, it's better than 60% off its high from last year. So investors are really getting clobbered in this ETF. But in 2022 alone, you're talking about a 36% decline from the high. Also closely correlated with the ARK Innovation ETF is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. It also had a pretty tough week, down over 7%. Year to date, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is now down 13%. And given how highly correlated it is with the ARK ETF, in fact, Kathy Wood is now getting ready to launch her own Bitcoin ETF, which I think is very fitting given how closely Her current ETF correlates to that, which also means it's unnecessary because when you have an ETF that's already so highly correlated to Bitcoin, why bother with another Bitcoin ETF? It seems kind of redundant. But given that high correlation and given the fact that the ARK Innovation ETF is down 36% this year and GBTC is only down 13%, Well, I think GBTC has a way to go to catch up. And by the way, Bitcoin itself, it was also beaten up on the week. It wasn't just the Grayscale Trust. But you know, what didn't go down on the week were the Euro-Pacific funds. And in fact, our separately managed accounts actually performed better than the funds themselves. But three of my five funds were up. The only equity fund that was down was the emerging market fund, but the gold fund was up 0.3%, not that big a move, but it was still positive. It's up 16.7% on the year. But look at my value and dividend payers funds. Value fund up 0.9% on the week. Dividend payers fund up 0.3%. Not a lot, but it's only a week and it beats the hell out of being down. By the way, the value fund is now up 10.4% so far in 2022. The dividend payers fund is up 10%. And this is all happening against the backdrop of a strong dollar, which is a huge headwind for these funds because all of these funds own stocks that are priced in foreign currencies. And so what that means is in local currency terms, these funds are doing a lot better than they are in dollar terms. In fact, the dollar index had another positive week. It moved from 98.63 up to 99.83. In fact, at one point on Friday, we did trade above 100 in the dollar index. We got to 100 spot 189. That's the first time the dollar index has broken above 100 since May of 2020. And that was when you had this big COVID-related dollar rally that began in March of 2020. In fact, in March of 2020, we almost hit 103 on the dollar index. The last time it traded above 100 until Friday was in May of 2020. Now, I think that high, which is 102.9 or so, that we hit in March of 2020, 
I think that's the high. I do not think the dollar index is going to take out that high. And I think eventually the dollar is going to roll over. Because if you look at a chart of the bond market, it's going to keep falling and it's going to eventually crash, as I said. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So far, the dollar is being supported by rising bond yields. But these rising bond yields should not be dollar bullish because they're only rising in nominal terms. In real terms, bond yields continue to fall because the real rate of inflation and even the government's admitted rate of inflation is accelerating faster than bond yields. So nominal yields up, but real yields down. Real yields are all that matter to the dollar and real yields are falling. So at some point, a falling bond market is gonna have to drag the dollar down with it. And of course, the opposite of that would be gold. Gold should be rising in the face of rising interest rates. And in fact, it actually is rising. It's just that its rise is somewhat subdued. Gold should be rising a lot more if people really understood the relationship. But the fact that gold is not falling, given the fact that this relationship is completely misunderstood, I think reveals tremendous underlying strength in the gold market. And just like I think the bond market is setting up for a crash, the gold market is setting up for the opposite of a crash. I mean, it's going to crash up, although if you're crashing up, it's not called a crash, but it's going to go ballistic. It's going to take off like a rocket ship. I don't know if it's going to moon Uh, like all these crypto people are hoping for Bitcoin, but it's definitely going much, much higher. In fact, on Friday, the price of gold was up another $15.50, so a pretty strong day. We ended up closing the week at $19.46.70, and that was about $20 higher than we closed the prior week, which is about a 1% gain, which is not bad when the dollar index also gained 1%, because that means that gold was up 2%, against other currencies such as the euro. And if you want to go back to the beginning of the year, gold is up about $100 an ounce since the end of 2021. That's a 5.5% increase in basically one quarter. So that would annualize out to a better than 20% annual gain 
in gold, which beats the hell out of getting a not even 3% yield in U.S. Treasuries. And it's certainly better than losing money in the U.S. stock market. So, so far this year, gold is a good investment. In fact, it has increased year to date more than the CPI because the CPI is not increasing at an annualized rate of 20%. So gold is acting as an inflation hedge so far in 2022. But one asset that is not acting anything at all like the inflation hedge it purports to be is Bitcoin. Bitcoin was down 7% on the week. As gold was going up, Bitcoin was going down. Again, Bitcoin is correlated with the Kathy Wood Innovation ETF, not gold. On the day on Friday, Bitcoin was down 3.5%. So half of last week's decline happened on Friday alone on a day where the price of gold was up $15.50. So clearly there is a negative correlation between Bitcoin and gold, not a positive correlation. By the way, now that I'm back on Bitcoin, I want to talk a little bit more about the Peter Thiel speech because I touched on a couple of aspects of that speech on my last podcast. But I want to look at another angle that I didn't mention because this speech has gotten a lot of coverage, probably because it's the most outrageous. But one of the things that Peter Thiel claimed about Bitcoin is he said that not only is Bitcoin an alternative to fiat currencies, not only is it alternative to gold, but it's an alternative to equities. He basically stated that he thought that Bitcoin was so valuable that all of the Bitcoin in the world, which are 21 million, right? All those Bitcoin should have the same value as all the stocks in the world, right? All the global stock markets rolled into one should have the equivalent value of all the Bitcoin. Now, again, what a complete absurd statement to make that Bitcoin is an alternative to stocks. In what way is it an alternative to stocks? Because I don't claim gold is an alternative to stocks. I claim gold is an alternative to the dollar. It's an alternative to the euro or the yen, but it's not an alternative to stocks. Why? Well, you can take dollars and stuff them under your mattress they're not going to produce a yield. You're just holding onto those dollars. Well, you can also take gold and stuff it under the same mattress and it's going to stay there. But if you're going to be stuffing something under your mattress, gold is going to be a lot better than paper. Now, maybe if you stuff enough gold under that mattress, it may be uncomfortable to sleep on it. I don't know. I mean, maybe the paper would be more comfortable, but I doubt anyone's going to have enough gold to actually feel it underneath their mattress. I mean, like the princess and the pea. None of us are so sensitive that we'd even feel a million dollars worth of gold lying underneath our mattress. But the point is, gold in and of itself doesn't generate a return and neither do dollars. In order to get a return on dollars, you have to lend them out and get interest. Well, you could do that with your gold if you wanted to. You can make a loan. You can loan your gold to somebody and they can pay you back your gold plus some interest. So you could do that. So gold is an alternative to dollars. And I suppose you could do the same thing with Bitcoin. You can loan somebody your Bitcoin and they can pay you back that Bitcoin with interest. The only problem is what the hell is the Bitcoin going to be worth when the loan is repaid? You have no idea because it's not a store of value. But in that respect, you could loan it out. But gold is nothing like stocks because a stock represents ownership in a business, an operating company that generates income and that returns that income to the shareholder. 
Gold is nothing like that. Neither is Bitcoin. Bitcoin doesn't generate any income. It is a non-productive asset with the word asset in quotes. So if you're looking for a productive asset that can grow over time and pay income, Bitcoin is not an alternative to stocks, just like gold is not an alternative to stocks. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't own gold as part of a portfolio, but you shouldn't own gold instead of owning stocks. You should own both. According to Peter Thiel, you don't need to own stocks. Just own Bitcoin instead. That is a ridiculous statement to make. Now, there are times when stocks are very expensive, and so maybe you don't want to buy them, and so you want to buy gold instead so you can keep your powder dry and wait for an opportunity to buy those stocks cheaper, and then you can sell your gold and buy more stocks. That's different than saying that gold is an alternative to stocks because it clearly is not. And over the long run, if you invest in stocks at the right time, right? Don't overpay, don't come in at the peak of a bubble. But if you're prudent and you buy value, you buy dividends, you do what we're doing with our client stock portfolios, over time, you will do much better in stocks than you will in gold. That's the point that Warren Buffett is always trying to make. When he talks down gold, he is talking about gold as a long-term investment, comparing it to stocks. And there I agree with Warren Buffett. As a long-term investment, gold's not good. Stocks are much better, especially if you're a guy like Warren Buffett and you know what you're doing when you're buying stocks. But if you talk to Warren Buffett about gold versus dollars, about what would you rather bury under the ground for 10 years or 100 years, gold or dollars, hands down, he's going to say gold. Warren Buffett understands the problem of paper money. After all, I've put clips on my YouTube channel where Warren Buffett defines inflation as a tax. He knows what it is. I read an article that he wrote a long time ago in which he referred to the dollar as squander bucks. He understands that the U.S. government is debasing its currency. In fact, he referred to the United States as squanderville and the U.S. government issuing squander bucks. So Warren Buffett gets gold. It's just that a lot of people don't understand that he gets it. And that's why when people make fun of me, they say, oh, Peter, if you like gold so much, why do you only have 10% of your portfolio in gold? And that's because I don't like it so much as a long-term investment. I recognize that that's not what gold is, but I do recognize it as a form of liquidity, as a form of insurance, portfolio insurance, as a store of value, as a potential medium of exchange, because it could work as a medium of exchange. Bitcoin won't, but gold could because it has in the past. So I understand gold's place. I also understand that Bitcoin has no place. There is a huge difference between gold and Bitcoin, and there's an even bigger difference between stocks and Bitcoin, but apparently Peter Thiel doesn't understand that difference. Now, Peter Thiel's a smart guy, so he's got to understand the difference. I think what Peter Thiel is doing is trying to sucker more people into the Bitcoin pyramid scheme. Because after all, this is the nature of what is going on. When you have a pyramid, Ponzi, chain letter, however you want to call it, you need more and more buyers to come in. And as the quantity of buyers who are already there increases, you need an even bigger influx of new buyers. That's why all pyramids eventually collapse because you can't build them up that high because you need increasingly large numbers of people 
to come on top. Like if you imagine a pyramid upside down, that's how it looks. Well, you know, a pyramid has no stability if you build it upside down. You have to start with a strong base and build up, but a pyramid scheme starts the opposite. You have a very narrow base and then you build up and wide and eventually the whole thing is going to topple. But as you get bigger and bigger and you have to attract more and more people, the stuff that you have to say to get those new buyers in is going to be more and more outrageous. Because what you have to say to get the early adopters in, well, that's not much. You can appeal to their intellect. You can appeal to their sense of, hey, we don't like fiat money. We want to get rid of the Federal Reserve. And, you know, you have the libertarians or have a lot of philosophical reasons that people get attracted to Bitcoin. So that's early on. But at the stage we're at now, that won't work. Because all the people who are philosophically inclined to want to buy Bitcoin, they're already in. See, now we have to get other people. Now we need a much bigger reach. So you have to say completely crazy things like, oh, Bitcoin is going to be equal to the value of all stocks. So it's going to go up a hundredfold from here. You need to sucker people in that think Bitcoin can go a hundred X because owning Bitcoin is as good as owning all of the stocks in the world. I mean, think about how outrageous that is for Peter Thiel to claim that all the Bitcoin should be worth as much as all the stocks. I mean, imagine if you owned all the equities in the world that are publicly traded. Can you imagine how rich you would be if you had all of those stocks? I mean, think about the dividends that you would collect every day if you owned every single publicly traded company all over the world. I mean, you would be rich beyond anybody's imagination. There would be nobody who could even come close to how rich you are. You would make you know, Rockefeller and Carnegie and Vanderbilt, these guys look like pikers compared to you. You would basically be the king of the world if you owned all of the world's stocks. On the other hand, what if you owned all the Bitcoin? What if you had all 21 million Bitcoin? You'd basically have nothing. I mean, A, those Bitcoin wouldn't throw off any income because you owned them. But B, if you owned them all, they'd have no value. Why would they have any value? Nobody else would have them. The only reason Bitcoin has some market value is because of this supposed network effect. You have all these people that own Bitcoin and believe in it. But if you owned them all, there'd be no network at all. You'd have nothing. I mean, you wouldn't get any income from your Bitcoin. So you'd still be broke unless you can convince somebody to buy them. But why would anybody want to buy it if nobody else owned it? If you owned all the Bitcoin, good luck finding anybody wanting to buy any Bitcoin from you because they would realize they were worthless. Now, I would also rather own all the stocks in the world than all of the gold. But at least if I owned all the gold, I would own a very valuable metal that a lot of industries need. So all of the jewelers, all of the consumer electronic companies that needed gold would have no choice but to buy it from me. I basically will have cornered the market and can pretty much name my price for gold. I mean, to some extent, I still have to compete with platinum or other metals that could be used, but I'd pretty much have all the gold and everybody would have to buy it from me. And so I'd be really rich. I'd have all sorts of cash flow as I slowly sold my gold to all the people, all the industries that needed it. But if I had all 21 million Bitcoins, Nobody else would actually want or need those Bitcoins for anything. And so I'd have nothing to sell. And so all I'd have is 21 worthless Bitcoins all to myself. So the whole thing is asinine on its face to make such a proclamation 
at that conference. But again, they're running out of fools. So you have to really up the ante on your crazy statements to get more and more people to get into this game. I mean, that's what they're doing. That's why you've got all these celebrities now. You've got professional athletes. You've got entertainers. Why are these people now being paid to shill Bitcoin? Because the Bitcoin promoters need to get access to their fan base, right? They have lots of followers, millions and millions of followers. They need these people to come into the market. The problem is they're not getting them. Sure, there's a bunch of greedy people out there, but there is a limit to how many there are. That's why the price of Bitcoin is not going up. It's going down. And that's because all the new buyers are not even sufficient to allow the old sellers to get out. So not only do they not have enough buyers to keep this pyramid going because the price is going down, not up, but there's not enough buyers to stop the market from falling. So it's not like they've been able to keep it stable over the past year. The price is going down. And of course, it's going to go down a lot faster when a lot more people start to throw in the towel and realize how completely outrageous these claims are. In fact, if you go back to early April, about April 10th or 11th of last year, 2021, Bitcoin first hit 65,000 back then. As I'm recording today on Saturday, we're barely above 42,000, 42,400. We're down 35% in a year. And think about what's happened during the past year, because it couldn't have been more positive for Bitcoin. I mean, everything went Bitcoin's way in the last year. I mean, first of all, you got nonstop positive media coverage. I've never seen anything like the positive coverage given to Bitcoin and crypto in general in any prior year than I saw in the past year. You also had an unprecedented advertising bliss. All these companies were flush with cash and they spent a lot of it on ads convincing people to invest in crypto and Bitcoin and all sorts of nonsense. Then you had these mega conferences going down, including the one that's happening right now down in Miami. There were lots of huge blowout conferences in the last year. You have all this growing political support on Capitol Hill. I touched on that in my last podcast. You have a lot of people now who are single issue voters. All they care about is do you support crypto? Do you support Bitcoin? Because their life savings are riding on it. And it's an easy decision for the politicians to be in favor of Bitcoin because it's not like, you know, pro-life or pro-choice where you're going to piss one side off when you pick a side. So if you come out and you're pro-choice, well, then you've lost all the votes of the pro-life. Come out pro-life, no one who's pro-choice is going to vote for you if that's their issue. But if you come out and you're pro-crypto, It's not like there's a bunch of voters who are so anti-crypto that they're not going to vote for you just because you've taken a positive stance on crypto. So it's a no-brainer for the politicians. You come out in favor of it, you get a lot of new votes, but you don't actually lose any votes. So it's a no-brainer. It's going to happen, plus you get money. So that's happened. You've got these celebrity endorsements like I've never seen before for Bitcoin. You have all this so-called mainstream adoption. You certainly got all the institutional interest, institutional investments. Look, we launched these two new Bitcoin future 
ETFs. You have the whole NFT phenomenon that really highlights cryptocurrencies because all the NFTs trade in crypto. If you want to get in on the NFTs, well, you got to get in on Ether, right? You had El Salvador and all that hype. You know, we have making Bitcoin a legal tender, Bitcoin City. I mean, all this stuff. Then, as if that wasn't enough, you have this massive breakout in inflation. Everybody goes from there's no inflation to, okay, we have all this inflation, 8% officially, unofficially, 15%. Bitcoin was supposed to be an inflation hedge, right? An alternative to gold, right? An alternative to the dollar. So we have a year of inflation, right? Perfect. You couldn't have written the script any better for Bitcoin. And then to make, to put the cherry on top, there's a war. There's a war that breaks out. Russia, the Ukraine. We have all this geopolitical chaos. We've got economic sanctions. I mean, all of this should have been perfect for Bitcoin. In fact, if you would have gone back to April of 2021, when Bitcoin was at 65,000, and you were able to tell people all this stuff that I just read off, all this stuff was going to happen in the next year, they would have been convinced that Bitcoin would have been a million. I mean, certainly 100,000 at a minimum, but probably more like a million given all this stuff that happened. Well, all this stuff happened and instead of going up, Bitcoin went down and it went down a lot. A 35% drop over that year is a big drop. Remember, gold went up during that same time period, not down. So why is that? Why did all this good news happen yet the price of Bitcoin went down anyway? Well, because there were a lot of people who sold into that good news. A lot of people who already owned Bitcoin didn't want to hodl, they wanted to sell. And even though they suckered in a lot of new buyers, it wasn't enough to offset all the early adopters who wanted out. And so despite that mass entrance into the market, the price went down. What does that also mean? That means Bitcoin was distributed in the past year. It went from strong hands to weak hands. In other words, it went from diamond hands to paper hands. That's where it is right now. For all the talk about diamond hands, diamond hands, right? The people who actually had them sold in the last year. Now, yeah, there's some little guys and they may think they have diamond hands and they're still in there, but you have a lot of marginal weaker players who just came in lately for the ride. They got excited into the market because they thought they're going to get rich or they think they're going to get rich. The people who bought into Bitcoin in the last year, these are not the diehard true believers. Any diehard true believers would have got into Bitcoin years ago. They wouldn't have waited until the last year with Bitcoin at 50 or 60,000 to buy their first Satoshi. They have been in and hodling for a long time. The guys that got in in the last year just couldn't wait. They couldn't handle the FOMO. They jumped on this train because they believed it was going to keep going up. And so far, it hasn't happened. Well, they're going to bail. There's going to be a breaking point. Maybe it's when Bitcoin breaks below 30,000, maybe 20,000, maybe 10,000. I don't know where that point is. I just know it's out there somewhere. But whenever you have a massive distribution top at the end of a huge bull market, that's it. And this is not just a huge bull market. This is a massive bubble. And you got to ask yourself, if you're still holding on to Bitcoin, if all this good news wouldn't make the price of Bitcoin go up, what will? And there's another old Wall Street saying that you have to pay attention to. And that's that if a stock won't go up on good news, 
it's going to go down. It means it's topped out. It means all the good news is already in the market. The same applies on the way down. If a stock stops going down on bad news, that's because all the bad news is priced in and now the only way it can go is up. Well, all the good news is priced into Bitcoin. It can't go up. And if it can't go up, it must go down and it's a long way down. Thank you.